When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took himself, took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, there are entities in life which at the one time can bring great joy and blessing, but at, can also bring darkness and non-blessings, but shame. Um, think about things. You know, whenever I officiate at a wedding, I tell couples, young couples, that a marriage can be a reflection of heaven itself, where there is love, where there is forgiveness, where there is compassion. It can be a beautiful picture of heaven. But it can also be a picture of hell, where there is antagonism and there is 
is deep hatred. And so that's, that's what a marriage is able to do. And if you're wondering, I, I'm writing the very, the former category. Uh, <laughs> children. Children can be a blessing from the Lord. But you may recall, I think it was Ann Landers or Dear Abby a number of years ago, where she had the question, if you would do it all over again, would you have your children? And she was surprised by the many, many people who said, no, we would not do it again. I'm thinking of, I think his name is Brenton Tarrant, Tarrant um, the, the perpetrator, the alleged perpetrator, um, live streaming, um, killing in, in Christchurch this, this past week. I read a story in the journal the other day of, of, of how, how endearing this little boy was to his parents. She might have second thoughts today. And so at the one time, great blessing, but at the other time, great pain and hurt. You think of money, your savings. Money can be a tremendous blessing. But sometimes it can take hold of you, then it can be a curse. So on the one hand, it can be a blessing from God, and on the other, it can be a curse from Satan. There's one other entity that I would like to put in that category, and that is the church. The church at the one time can be a tremendous blessing from God. Bill Hybels called um, the, the local church the, the greatest gift to the world. The, the, the local church is the hope of the world, he says. But at the same time, or not at the same time, but at on other occasions, it can be an impediment to the things of God. And it can be a conduit of the work of Satan. Where do I get those ideas? Well, again, as we look at this passage from Matthew chapter 16. Here is Peter's confession. We'll see that in a moment. But you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The God who lives. And Jesus says, this wasn't just, you didn't come to this in your, own, in your own thought processes. This was revealed by my heavenly Father. And you are, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. He was, he was a conduit for the things of God. This was going to be a tremendous blessing. But then, just a few verses later, there, this rock this rock on which Jesus is going to build his church is referred to as Satan. Get behind me, Satan, for you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of humans. On the one hand, the blessing of God, and a few verses later, in the hand of Satan. So, 
How are we going to distinguish that? How are we going to look at that? Well, first of all, of course, we need to be in prayer. We need to be aware of this. We need to be aware of it in marriage and with our children and with our money and certainly in the church and that we pray, that we pray fervently that we may remain as, as people who desire to be the conduit of Jesus Christ, wanting to build his church, as we just saw, visualized a few moments ago. And so this morning I'd like to look at this passage from Matthew chapter 16. And we note that it begins in Caesarea Philippi. When Jesus came to that region, now that region is, is, is very important to this whole story here. Caesarea Philippi is in what's kind of now known as kind of the, the Golan Heights of Israel, the northeast section there. In this area, there were many Gentiles living. Gentiles with their own religions and with their own way of doing things. This was also an area where there were the fertility gods, the Baals. You may recall the story of Elijah there on Mount Carmel and, and all the priests and, and, and wanting to lay, offer. These were fertility gods. And so if you wanted good crops, and of course, you know, today, the, as we're focusing also a little bit on, on prayers for, for crops and as we anticipate going into the land, well, these people in, in that culture, people would offer offerings to the Baals. And so here there was in that area many of these fertility gods. This was also the region from which they believed that the god Pan, P-A-N, came from. And that's interesting, too, because that god Pan is, is still very popular today. We, we refer to pantheism. Maybe some of you are aware of a group like PETA, uh, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And so they, and there's one, I think it's good to treat animals, it's important to treat them ethically. But they go further where, where, where everything is sacred. God dwells in all animals and all people. We're all the same. And so this is, this is where this God pun came from. And finally, this was Caesarea Philippi. And there was a gold statue to Caesar. Caesar who is Lord. And so when Jesus came to this area, he asked him a question. And so here we are against this backdrop. Here comes Jesus. Now think about this for a moment. Here comes Jesus, this, this homeless, this itinerant rabbi with, with 12 followers, ordinary folks, fishermen, tax collectors, just ordinary folks. And he asked them the question, who do people say that I am? And they say, wow, a number of people say that you're, you know, various prophets. And you see, if, if Jesus is just another prophet, that's very, very inoffensive. I mean, prophets, well, you can kind of take them or, or, or leave them. You probably should listen to them, but, but well, there have been many prophets. So Jesus is just another one of a long, long list of prophets, some, some people are speculating. But then Jesus... 
Jesus asked the question, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter, on behalf of, of all the, the spokesperson for the apostles, says, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's powerful. I mean, against the backdrop of all the world's religions, so to speak, of all the world's powers, like Caesar, you, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, you are right. But this isn't something that you have come to on your own, but my heavenly Father has revealed it to you. And on this rock, I will, you are Peter, and on this rock, which means, Peter means Petros, rock, I will build my church. Now, just as an aside, this is, of course, the area where there's the vast difference between the Protestants and the Catholics. I mean, when Jesus says this rock, the Catholics believe that this is literally Peter. And so St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, they believe that that's where Peter was buried. And so literally on that, on that Peter, on that rock, they built the church. But Protestants believe it, that yes, it, it refers to Peter, but on behalf of the apostles. And it's his confession where people, where people truly believe you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's where God builds his church. And so it is so very important to keep that in mind. That what, what is the church? Yes, it is it is uh, doctrines. Doctrines play a very important role. Yes, it is fellowship. Yes, it is programs. All of these things are, are very, very important. But at the heart, but at the heart of it belongs Jesus. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that, and that is so fundamental. Because Jesus says, to you is given the keys of the kingdom of what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, that doesn't mean that we can say, okay, uh, yeah, all right, you're, you're going to go to heaven. No, you're going to. No, that's, that's not what it means. But in terms of the message, that if you believe Jesus, if you believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, the living God, yes, you will, be, you will be embraced by heaven itself. And if you reject it, you will be loosed here on earth. Now that seems to be very, very arrogant, doesn't it? And it's not very politically correct at all. But really when you think about it, that's, that's kind of the nature of, of of religions, a Muslim would say, you know, these are the five tenets of, of the, the Muslim faith, and if you don't adhere to them, then you will not enter into heaven. Buddhists will, will say, if you want to reach nirvana, these are the eight steps that you, that you need to take, and if you don't, then you will not reach nirvana. And so, yes, it comes to that point. Against 
the backdrop of all the other religions. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so if the church is going to be built, it's that message, it's that faith, that rock faith that needs to be be evident. And so here then is established the who. It's Jesus. That he is the center. He is the one that's going to build his church. And by the way, it's very significant. Jesus does not use the, the term church very often. It's only twice and and here. So it's in Paul then, of course, who, who picks up on that word church. But what is Jesus doing? What is he spending his time at? Jesus is building his church, we read. And so if we believe in Jesus, if he is the Messiah, then certainly we would want to be on his side. We, want to, we would want to join him in building his church. So the who is established. But now, now the question is, how does God build the church? How does Jesus build the church? And then we notice here in this passage very um, clearly that from that time on, Jesus began to, to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and, and, and so forth. You know, from that moment on. In other words, he is, it's been established that he is the center of the church, but now, now he's, he's explaining that he must. Not that he is going to. Not that it's, it's kind of an accident that, that, that he's predicting that these things. No, he must suffer and die. Now, this is where Peter speaks up again. Again, probably on behalf of the apostles. And he says, this will never be. I don't know about you, but I can understand Peter very, very well here. I don't, I don't, particularly like to suffer. I don't like to focus on suffering. And so Peter is saying, look, you've just established the fact that you are the Christ, that you are the Son of God. You don't have to suffer. You can make mincemeat out of the Romans. You're the Son of God. You can, you can put every other faith and every other godless religion, you can, you can make it nothing. You have that power. You are God. And so Peter says, this will never happen to you. But that's when Jesus says very clearly, get, me, get behind me, Satan. This is satanic thinking. You know, Satan, when he, when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, we read that, the, that, he, that Satan, the devil, left 
searching for another opportunity to tempt him. Well, here is the opportunity. Satan knows. Satan knows how crucial the cross is. And so if he can avoid the cross, if he can avoid Jesus on the cross, then he would have won. And so he puts all the power and all the thinking there, Jesus, you don't have to go the way of the cross. You are the son of God. You're the powerful one. Now suppose, suppose Jesus, because you know later on in the Garden of Gethsemane, we, we read that Jesus was, was sweating blood and if, if it is possible, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Suppose Jesus would have said, you know, yeah, maybe I should rethink that. Peter, you don't think suffering really belongs here? Well, okay. Maybe I'll do it a different way. And suppose even that all the people of that day, that they, that they accepted Jesus as, as the Lord, as, as the powerful one, because he exhibited that power. Wouldn't that be great? No, it wouldn't be great. Because you see, then your life and my life wouldn't be changed. All it would be is hero, hero worship, like we do, you know, with some of our politicians or sports personalities or whatever. You know, we like so-and-so, we like so No, we like Jesus. Look what, look what he's able to do. But our hearts can still be a stone. And so that's why Jesus says, says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. This is, this is devilish thinking. If you think, if you think that, that you know, and, and throughout the history of the church, this has happened where it becomes, where it becomes a powerhouse and where, where it constricts people and puts people down. And, and, and if you think that that's what's going to build the church, and we have seen it so many times that it's devastating. It's devastating for the church. No, says Jesus, I must suffer and die. As we're now in this Lenten season, we focus, we focus on the suffering of Jesus. But then, but then the passage goes on again. Not only must Jesus die, but we, we are to take up the cross we are to deny ourselves. Again, the question is, how does Jesus build the church? Well, it's through suffering. It is through denial. You see, I, men I mentioned a moment ago that through the death of Jesus, as he takes my sin. And, and, and bears the shame of that, bears it on the cross and gives me a new, and a new spirit, a new person. That how, how does that person show itself? It shows itself in humility. <coughs> it shows itself in caring for others. That, that is the way that, that it works. We live, we live in a day and age of entitlement. 
through, through the na last number of years, the education system has focused on, on self-fulfillment. And, and so, you know, two people who feel that they are entitled, for example, enter into a marriage situation. And very quickly, uh, too quickly, too often, well, my needs are not being met anymore by that person as if that's if that's as if that's what's most important in life my needs no says jesus to show that we have been touched by the spirit of the risen christ we humble ourselves we give of ourselves we ask how we can be a servant to our husbands or to our wives and to our children. That, that is the way in which the church is built. We deny ourselves. And so, congregation, I just hope and pray that, you know, as we, ref as we think about our young people in, in, in Mexico, as we, as we th think about giving, as we think about serving, as we uh, think about maybe working with, with World Renew or in fostering or, or in whatever ways we, we want to serve one another, we want to show that love and that, that is the way the church is built. You know, for the last almost a couple of years been, I've gotten to know the Bethel congregation and I know there's some hurts and there's some pains and there's some struggles but I hope and pray that as a new pastor comes on the scene that you will not first of all ask yourself the question what am I getting out of it but that you may ask yourself the question, how can I be a blessing to Bethel Church? Because, you know, as Terry said a moment ago, that, that yes, also, Jesus, uh, Bethel is not the, the church, but it is, it is a church. It does belong to Jesus. And it has a lot of wonderful things going for it. And maybe I'm a little biased, of course, but, but it does. It does have a lot of wonderful things. And I just hope and pray. I hope and pray that here in this passage, first of all, that Jesus may remain central. That he is the Messiah. And irrespective of what anybody else's, any other faith there, I join those disciples. And they're just a small little group. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then I discover ways in which I can be a blessing, in which I can be a servant, in which I can be a help. And in this way, Join with Jesus in the task in which he is engaged now until he returns. That is, to build his church.